and welcome to Glitch Cube, we're a gaming podcast, and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. As always, I'm Christian. I'm Chris. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week as we dive further into the world of games. So this week, we are going to be talking about how games are made. More specifically, we're going to be diving into game engines themselves. Now, a lot of people out there have probably heard of the term game engine. But do you really know where it comes from? And before game engines were ever invented, have you ever thought of how games were actually made? And when was the first game engine ever developed? Right? These are some interesting questions once you start really diving into it. Because when you really learn how games were made before game engines were developed, oh god <laughs> like just looking at it I, I for a moment there i i found out how nes games were made and i was like "Ooh, i want to try that and then i watched a couple tutorials on it and i went i'm good <laughs> like, i don't know if i actually want to put myself through that but it might be a good learning process um i, I think it's really fascinating going through different game engines uh, I, I do have my degree in game design, so for some reason, I just love playing with game engines. I like seeing how they work, how they tick, how each one's slightly different than the other ones. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, of course, right? If you want to do a 2D character, there's a lot of the same kind of movements. And even if they use their own personal scripts, the syntax is usually pretty similar, right? Because they we're always following the same convention of some type of coding language. There's a lot of similarities between them, but the differences are pretty huge uh, as well. So it is it is a very fascinating and interesting thing to kind of dive into. And really, this has just been incredibly inspiring for us as we've discussed making a game for quite a while now. Actually, it was the first conversations that we had before we decided to make this podcast was making a game. Um, and we figured this would be easier. Uh, we were wrong, but you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, we are definitely feeling like we are at that point where it might be time to start that. It might be time to start that little adventure for us. So uh, we have been looking at a lot of game engines and kind of deciding which one would be the best, uh, especially for uh, learning or getting used to the idea of making a game, uh, which one's most approachable. And I've tested out quite a few now at this point. So uh, there are a lot of YouTube videos and things out there that say, you know, like Unity versus Unreal and all this stuff, right? And they kind of try and do pros and cons versus that. But no video that I've seen and I've watched a lot recently has really conveyed the differences between them because it really just depends on your personal preference and what kind of game you want to make. So we're going to dive into some of the engines a little bit later and discuss some of the differences, maybe even chat about what they might be good for and some stuff about like maybe ages, right? Like what might be good for kids to start to learn to code and game because uh, it's actually a really great way to learn coding is by making a game and, you know, trick a kid to have fun and they're going to learn something. <laughs> It's definitely something that I've learned in my job. Uh, so it's it's been a pretty exciting and fun diving through that world. But before we go too, too far into it, and before we go into some of the history behind the game engines themselves, uh, what's like whenever you heard the game engine before really looking into it, like what was your thought behind it? Like, I know that you've looked into it a little bit more, but I'm kind of curious because I've been around them for quite a while now. 
and various different IDEs for a lot of coding, right? For mm -hmm. probably almost a decade at this point. Uh, but what what's your look at them or how what was your viewpoint of them? So for a long time, I never really thought too much about them. You know, uh, like 10 years ago or so, I feel like, well, maybe not 10 years ago, but longer than that, 15 years ago, let's put it that way, before like the 2010s, I never really thought much game engines. Uh, I always, for the, I mean, for the most part, it always seemed like a lot of games kind of were made on their own mm -hmm. a lot of times too like older like late 90s and stuff but i i was always interested in them i i always wanted to make a game but i never felt like i was smart enough for it i mean now i i'm motivated i want to learn but i think the first time i found love for it and really wanted to do something was actually with rpg maker mm. uh i remember getting it for the original playstation which sounds like the worst place to try and make a game on because <laughs> you know it, it's limited but i thought it was so cool like i never realized like i guess i think i don't think it came out over here but in japan there was an anime maker and you could actually export your your sprites or your your portraits from that onto a playstation memory card and then boot that up into the RPG maker, which that sounds so damn cool. They were able to do that back then, but that's really cool. I always, because I loved RPGs, I was like, Oh, I really want to make my own. And I think I spent a lot of time on that console version, like making something. And I sadly don't have that memory card anymore and all that, but eh, it probably wouldn't be good anyway. But <laughs> Besides that, I really liked it. And I really wanted to learn because back then it's like, you know, RPG Maker, for the most part, it's a lot of plug and play, which is mm -hmm. nice. I remember, I forget the one that came out in like 2013. Uh, let's see. I remember RPG Maker 2003, but it was, I think, vx ace or it's one of those i remember mm -hmm. i had an x uh i started to mess around with that but i didn't really have the patience for it at the time and i just kind of gave up on it but i love that there was a lot more features this was before the huge influx of rpg maker games came out on the market uh, you just i remember five years ago ten years ago on steam almost every new title that you would see were RPG Maker games, which, you know, looking at the Steam page nowadays, I'd rather take those than the horny 3D puzzling games. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I after seeing that and playing around with it, I, I really want to make a game. Um, the only engine I really had any kind of playing around with would be Unity, but after seeing some of these engines and doing research for this episode, I'm like, Oh, maybe I should do something different. And it boggles my mind. How many, not only like open engines there are for like us to use, but like the ones that are locked behind doors, right? Like for right. first party companies. And then even the old engines, like it's 
fascinating how all these different engines exist. And when you think about all the games in existence, it's like, oh my God, like, I don't know, there's something so exciting about that and like learning what your favorite, what engine your favorite games use. Like, it's so damn cool. Right. And the actual like library of games across all of these engines, right? It's it's pretty amazing to look at a game and then kind of dig deep into what game engine was used to create them because you can start to see some reasons as to why those were chosen, right? Like if you want amazing impeccable lighting, you go with Unreal, but you need a really damn powerful computer to do so, right? Or if you want, if you're an indie developer that's starting up, most of the time you're probably going to go with Unity. And Unity has been around for quite a while, so it makes sense that it has become such a staple in the indie development scene. But there are so many other game engines out there that it really is just dealer's choice at that point and personal preference. Because no matter what, you can get an amazing game out of the engine if you put enough passion into it, right? Like, it's just... It's really about that. And it really shows through with the early days of game making, right? Before game engines were around, they had to use the tools that they had already. And the tools they had at that time were things like 6502, which is assembly language, right? So the assembly language is just machine language. It's how you talk to a computer and it's a lot of binary and things like that. So the game makers of the past were all computer software engineers that just turned game makers because they wanted to do something fun and different. But the amount of work that goes into those titles is pretty insane, actually. And I really implore people to look up 6502 game design uh, and actually see what it takes to make just a single sprite show up on the screen. And then start thinking about animations after you've made a stagnant scene. It it just kind of blows me away. And I'm pretty sure I feel like I read this somewhere and I couldn't find it again. But from what I remember, the way that the animations work on especially older televisions, because they do a screen wipe and then as the screen is wiping, then it replaces the pixels that were there previously. And that's what creates images to make it look like things are moving. Right. Uh, And now imagine that with like game development where you're thinking about If a player moves to the left, I have to then rewrite all the pixels from left to right one pixel at a time. And then if they move back to the other way, then I need to rewrite it back that way, too. And I need to create a loop that's going to continuously do that for every single pixel that's on the screen. And that just is a daunting experience, right? Where like if we look at some of these other designers, like even sprite designing, has become a lot easier with things like A-Sprite. A-Sprite is a fantastic program that I personally love, uh, and it makes sprite design so much easier. But back then, whenever you're looking at a sprite, especially in the code like 6502, you're looking at numbers, Mm -hmm. and that's it. And each number, you have to specifically tell or find out what color equates to what number that that uh, that, um, display system can actually use and utilize so then let's say you want to do mario right well mario is i believe a 16 by 16 grid so you have to do it one row at a time so you're having a string of numbers like maybe it's zero 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 for a black okay so then the next one might be like zero zero one for the the red bit of his hat and then you have to keep stringing those numbers together 
with no spaces or anything in between all that and make sure it's all like the best way to do it, honestly, is to write it out as you would see it as a sprite. So you can kind of think of the numbers as the squares that they equate to. But it, that just becomes a huge, huge mess. Honestly, it becomes really confusing to do that kind of stuff. And I remember doing stuff like that um, in my very first Java class. My job, my first Java class, they we were messing around with like a the GUI or the G, you know the interface for the the player to or mm-hmm. mess around with your program. Uh, it's called we call it GUI. <laughs> At least that's not everyone I know. I calls everybody it that. calls it GUI, but it's you know GUI. It's game user interface. That's what it stands for. Uh, but <laughs> it's it, it's just funnier. It's just a nice little tweak there, but. It, it was really difficult to actually code out all that stuff because we had to know where each number laid as what sprite and sometimes they don't line up perfectly. So you're just kind of guessing and hitting play and stopping and adjusting one pixel play, stop it, just one pixel, right? Like there's a lot of that going on and it gets incredibly frustrating. Hell so it, yeah, it, it's it's a lot to deal with. And imagine... A lot of games before 1985, honestly, every game before 1985 was made in some sort of machine language format. So that's kind of a crazy amount of games. And NES games were made exclusively with 6502. So every single game we play on the NES, that was made using that process. So it's it's pretty amazing to see what kind of work went into it. But... The first game engine, or the one that's credited as the first, came out in 1985, and that's called Gary Kitchen's Game Maker. And it was actually developed by Activision, so it was released by them, and it was used for the Commodore 64, the Apple II, and IBM PCs. And what was kind of interesting about this is that it gave you an all-in-one, and what it actually did was it allowed you to interface with the computer without having to do the binary stuff. It took care of that for you. And it's called, um, oh God, what's it called? A low-end, uh, low-end programming, right? So machine languages like 6502, stuff like that, it's called high-end programming. And then game engines are called low-end programming. And it sounds kind of weird, right, when you think about it. Like, whenever I look at a game engine, I think that's a lot more fancy than uh, machine language. <laughs> so high end, low end feels weird. But what it actually means is that high end programming means that you have 100% control over absolutely every single aspect of it, right? It, like you are basically typing in computer language to the computer and telling it what to do. That's what it boils down to. Now, low end means that you are, there's some more limitations in place because you're using a separate interface to then get translated to the machine language. That's what game engines are, if people don't know that. They take what we want, so it allows us to easily visually see what we're trying to do and converts all of that stuff into machine language for the computer to actually understand. So that's where some of the limitations of certain game makers and game engines come up, right? And uh, Gary's Kitchen's Game Maker uh, is actually made up of five different parts, which I think is really cool that they gave this much control to game makers in 1985. So there's the scene maker for making backgrounds and graphics and things like that. There's the sprite maker to create your movable objects and your animations or your sprites, right? There's the music maker uh, that's for musical scores. The sound maker, which is specifically for sound effects. So there's two different noise makers, basically. 
And then there's the editor. That's where you use your actual programming and all that good stuff. And it was coded in basic. Uh, basic is it's, it's a tough language. <laughs> I didn't really enjoy doing those classes, to be honest. I like object oriented <laughs> classes personally. It just makes more sense in my brain. Uh, but there were uh, quite a few limitations to this. Uh, you can only have eight sprites uh, displayed at one time uh, just because of the graphical interface and the power behind the game maker itself. Uh, each hmm. sprite and background may have a maximum of four colors. Okay, And the palette size was only 16. So you have 16 colors to choose from, and you can only have four per object. Uh, that way the computer can actually parse out everything that you were trying to do. So we wouldn't get these gorgeous pixel art graphics that we have nowadays. Uh, and then there's only two stationary background scenes may be employed per game. So that the limit of backgrounds was only two due to memory size. And there was only 3,553 total bytes available for game resources. And that includes sounds, music, sprites, and code. So that's not that much. <laughs> 3,000 bytes is, is very small. It's like nothing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty crazy what they were able to do with such a crazy limitation. But, you know, with limitations really do breed creativity. And we have seen some amazing creative ideas come out of something so limited. But it is quite fascinating to really look back at some of the original game makers. And Gary's Kitchen is a really cool one. And some awesome games came out of it. So, I mean, it kind of shows why a lot of the like dungeon crawler games, right, for instance, where you're going from room to room, but a lot of the rooms look exactly the same, right, where you can go left, right, forward, left, right, forward, left, right, forward, or just left, right, right? Like there's only those kind of choices there because there's only a limited amount of background images you can actually have. And it it really did limit these things, but we still felt like we were going through some crazy immersive large worlds, which is an amazing feat to pull off. It's probably the best magic trick in the world. And I, I've always said that game makers are magicians, 100%. Like we use illusion to create these worlds for people to go in. Like that water probably isn't, I mean, it's not actual water. You're not really going through that, but you're going through when it, a trigger box, an invisible box that whenever your player hits the water, then it goes into the swim animation to give you the player the illusion of swimming. Or it might put a filter over the camera to show that you're underwater, right? Like, and there's a lot of weird things like that. You can turn the water into wine. So you yeah. are a magician. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the greatest magician known to man. Thanks, Jesus. No. <laughs> But I don't know, man, like the, the amount of work that got put into this stuff is just freaking insane. I, I, I don't I'm, I'm curious if I would even have the patience to do that stuff nowadays. Right. Like if, if this was the way we had to make games, would it be yeah. even a conversation that we'd be having? Right. Yeah. So, it. Yeah. I as someone who's learning or trying to learn a language right now, looking at that low level, you know, like the where it's basically just all binary. I'm like, how the hell do you learn that? Right? Like, it's like, to me, like, learning these high-level <laughs> ones makes sense, right? Right, right? Like, everything's kind of shorthand, or you can just kind of look at a, a, a string or a line and be like, oh, I can kind of get that. Mm -hmm. But when you just look at numbers or, like, random letters mixed in, you're like, what the heck is that? Like... <laughs> 
especially these older ones. Like I was while we were talking earlier, I was looking over the how they made Final Fantasy Seven mm. uh, for the PlayStation One, and I was looking at all their like code and stuff, and I'm like, oh my god, like that looks complicated too. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was not simple, and that's something that's like weird to think about back then. Was that a lot of engines did that? Like they didn't have the simplicity of these, like more easy to understand languages and the 6502 just scares me just the way it looks <laughs> yeah but uh the the gary kitchen that one was interesting because i remember actually reading about him before because he was so monumental to that era i mean his work like you said commodore apple atari like he was mostly the one that ported donkey kong to the atari from mm-hmm. the arcades you know and and back then porting it, was very different it was you remake the game yep and <laughs> you have to think from an arcade to a console there's a lot of differences right like there's a lot of ram limitation uh with arcades you can stick in more ram if you want you can you know you can drop thousands of dollars to make your pcb just a monster, but when you look at the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, which had very, very low RAM, even well, let's say even back then, you know, compared to the NES, it's kind of crazy how well even that ran back then. Like you wouldn't think such simple-looking games could make a console chug, but even back then, like some games really pushed the limits of those consoles, and it's kind of Interesting to think about because you wouldn't think about like an 8 bit game being like too powerful for the hardware. But well, whenever you yeah. only have 3,000 bytes to work with, <laughs> yeah, it's just a lot. It's crazy. And it's crazy that people still like make games for those consoles nowadays. I mean, there's definitely programs to make those games a lot easier, mm-hmm. which is cool. You know, like we've been seeing a lot of games being made for the Sega Genesis again, the NES, even the Atari, even like random consoles that, you know, don't really get talked about like the Odyssey and it, like people it's even crazy. code for the Commodore still. Like it's weird. People people adore the Commodore and at times like I wish I could I could see why people love the Commodore, right? It's the the early beginnings of gaming mm-hmm. really when you think about it right the the non-arcade games right the, the text base like really cool and seeing people still continue that to this day it's crazy but yeah when people make games in these old languages on top of that that's crazy to me like damn yeah it's scary it's pretty insane. And what I think is even more insane is that after the 85 or yeah, after 1985, whenever he, uh, Gary's Kitchen came out and game designers didn't go away, right? They didn't shy away. They wanted to continue making these things happen, continue making games and continue making them better and look better. So people started developing their own engines. So there's a lot of private party engines out there 
uh, that are exclusive to the company. So the only way to gain access to these things is to work for that company. It's very tight-lipped where you can't even see like change logs online or what kind of updates they're doing. It's very like hold it close to your chest kind of stuff, which is pretty amazing. And it's what gives a lot of these games their own unique look and style, which is pretty, really, really cool, honestly. But there's one engine that kind of jump-started all of this. Like Gary's Kitchen was great because it gave people the ability to do this. But in 1993, an engine came around that really revolutionized everything. And a designer that changed the way that we look at games and really want it found like really created that drive to push the engine as far as possible, really push it to the limit of what's actually there and how to make games look good. And that's John Carmack. John Carmack is like a legend when it comes to game design. Um, I, if you haven't heard of John Carmack, then you probably heard of the games he's made at least, you know, legend, everything he does. God damn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you heard of a little game called Doom? Yeah. So John Carmack is the one who made the game engine for Doom. So instead of using something that was already pre-done or using machine language or anything like that, he wanted to do something different. So he made an entire game engine for this game specifically, just Doom. And they promised so much. They promised like crazy graphics, stuff that you're never going to see before, you know, like really pushing the the edge or pushing the limits of what your PC can actually handle. And he even says that it would offer a host of technical tour de forces to surprise the eyes while delivering smooth gameplay across a range of PC hardware, right? So he's saying that no matter what kind of PC you have, you're going to get an amazing experience out of it. Now, we've seen a lot of game designers promise a lot of stuff to us and they don't deliver. But John Carmack did deliver, and it blew everyone away. And what was even better than that, they made the Doom engine available to the masses. So he actually released the source code to his engine, his baby, something that he worked on for weeks on end. And if you haven't read the Masters of Doom book, so there's a whole, whole like biography on John Carmack and John Romero, the two Johns that made this. Uh, Carmack is kind of insane. <laughs> he locked himself basically in a closet for weeks in order to finish this engine and to get it right. And he was really much a recluse when it came to his work. He needed a complete isolation from the world. But whenever he emerged from his cocoon or his cave, man, did he bring magic. Like when he came out, people knew, okay, it's ready. It's time to go, right? And it it shows like his stuff is revolutionary. It changed the way that we look at games completely. And the stuff that Doom has done is pretty amazing. And it really, like I said, it 100% paved the way for the games that we have nowadays. It, like no matter what, if you if you enjoy games or if you are a game designer, or you want to study games or anything like that. I implore you to just look at Doom. You don't even have to like the game, but just you have to know and appreciate what this game really did for us. It made deathmatch, right? Like there's something that's so iconic across everything. It it showed people that we can start pushing computers further than we ever thought we could. And it basically gave people the the idea to share your code. 
to be open with this kind of stuff because someone else might be able to do it better. Now, who can code better than John Carmack? I don't know. <laughs> Especially during that yeah. time, I think he's probably one of the best out there, right? Uh, but he at least gave it or made it available for people to do that. And it's it's pretty amazing to see that. Like, it's crazy because you have to think, like, after that, he and Romero went to work on the Quake engine, which mm-hmm. is obviously an evolution in a sense also because it was probably, in my opinion, from looking over all the other engines, was one of the first engines to really make 3d games run well mm-hmm. and there was a lot that faked it before and there were a couple engines like from bethesda that did try to do 3d but mm-hmm. they failed horribly carmack figured it out he figured out how to make 3d a real thing yeah not an illusion real 3d i mean when you look at the quake 3 engine and pre unreal engine it it was the top of the line. I mean, even Tim Sweeney, like, thinks very highly of Carmack, and it's funny because vice versa. Like, they both, like, have high praise for each other. And, I mean, really, when you think about it, like, Unreal Engine was coming out right during the height of the Quake Engine, right? Quake 3, then you had Unreal Tournament. Like, it's it's crazy to see that evolution uh, something I found interesting, and this is kind of like a going back to the Doom engine. When you look at um, as someone who likes playing boomer shooters a lot, the build engine was something kind of interesting. And kind of looking at uh, Ken's Labyrinth, uh, which was the first game made in it, it it almost looks 3d, which is crazy to think. Cause that was 94. Um, mm-hmm. to me, it looks like more of like a 3d Wolfenstein. And I'm like, Oh my God, like this existed in 94. Like this is crazy. Yeah. But, um, that build on it, like that, like you said, that doom engine, it, it revolutionized the gaming world. I think, in a way that we haven't really there's some things you could argue that we've seen that have been very monumental in game making but i don't know if there's really been anything ever since i mean it it's hard to think right like obviously like mm-hmm. i said with quake being like an evolution of it you know i think Maybe the way Unreal is going with the Lumen and everything, there could be. But But as far as like a big jump like that, to go from 6502 to the Doom Engine, that's a huge leap. Like we haven't had a massive leap like that in a while. Like things look great and they continuously start to look better and better each time. But not to that state where... Every single game before this was just 2D. Most games mm-hmm. only had four color sprites. Remember that. Most games only had two or three backgrounds in their title. Like that was it. It was it's pretty amazing. And these engines allowed us to reuse code, which is something that wasn't actually available to us beforehand. So that's another really interesting thing too with these new development of these game engines is that reusing code wasn't a thing you couldn't do that 
because like if somebody made it, they probably used a different uh, source material, a different code language or whatever, supporting it. Like we said, if you port something, you have to remake it in the language of whatever it is you're designing it for. But with these game engines, we're able to now reuse code, which makes it a lot easier to make games. So it's like that's a huge jump in gaming evolution right there. And real quick, too, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Unreal Engine has become a huge thing as far as game engines go. But it's like you mentioned, it's based off of it's from Unreal Tournament in 1999. So Unreal has been around since, you know, it was first developed in 1998. The game released in 1999. But the engine itself has been used since then, and it was for Unreal Tournament. So what's really cool about these games is that all of them are designed for one game specifically. It's just up to that developer to then say, go ahead and use this, or please do. Let's see more games in this. We put a lot of work into this, obviously. Share it with everybody. So that's where Unreal comes from. It comes from that game. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's to me that early 90s, early 2000s era of all these different game engines starting to kind of kind of pop up is so fascinating to me because it was kind of like a everything felt so individual compared to now where I mean, yes, there's a lot of engines in existence now, but to me with the ease of access of Unreal and Unity alone, you know, not counting all these other ones, we're starting to see like a lot of games that almost look the same. And that's why when we see one that stands out, it makes a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I looked at a, a, an engine I always really enjoyed the look of growing up just because I love late nineties and early two thousands, like polygons and the graphics. Uh, one that really stood out to me was a renderware. Oh yeah. Uh, it, started in the early 90s and was actually a subsidiary of canon i didn't know that Uh, yeah it it was like a small group that kind of branched off and when you look at the the possibilities of what they were doing in 3d back then before OpenGL, before direct x it was fascinating like if i was old enough to see that kind of stuff i'd be like whoa like this is crazy looking right like Mm -hmm that early 93 like you didn't really see that at all but basically they their games were just pc up until like 99 uh then the dreamcast came out and that's when they started releasing some games on there which for them weren't too successful but they saw their success on the playstation 2 and they actually have like over a hundred games that they made for it. And it's fascinating because a lot of them are really big games. Mm-hmm. The, the GTA titles, the, the trilogy, right? Three vice city, San Andreas, the Tony Hawk titles, RPGs, like persona, the sweet and three, like a lot of them were made in this. And I feel like you don't really hear about that at all. And I think the, the biggest success that that engine saw was the Burnout series. Um, it, I mean, everyone knows Burnout. It stands out because it's like one of the coolest crash, car crash looking games, right? right. Particles are crazy and it, it, it's just, it's a cool game. Uh, at this point, they 
they early 2000s, right? Success of the PS2. They get bought out by EA uh, under the name Criterion, which I feel most people only know that because of burnout. But the sad thing is, right? This is the early 2000s, and they EA was still at that point. Oh yeah, like all these companies, they can still use Renderware. Like it's totally fine. You know, they'll just have to pay the the fees to EA. Well, a few months later, they cut it where only existing projects can use it as support, and that's it. And then finally, they just kind of call it quits. Mm. And it's sad because really, when you look at the height of it, that software was so flexible. Like, yeah, there was limitations. A lot of the things with it is that, you know, it could look great. But there were some kind of performance issues with it. There was a lot of good, like, depth of field. And around that time, Unreal was really picking up. I think Unreal 3, like, just started taking root. And EA shut down Renderware and Criterion. And in turn, started using Unreal Engine 3, Mm. which was the fear that, you know, they were going to take over with that. So it's kind of sad, you know, even, even though like there's some criterion that still exists in EA, like the, the teams, it, you know, we're just never probably going to see a real burnout game again, anything like that. But yeah, like it's, it's kind of crazy how they just kind of got taken off the market. Oh, the crazy thing is, right. The, the hardware is still kind of being used by I don't want to call it a metaverse because everyone hates that term. Uh, A 3D social space, right? Like Second Life, VR chat. So not many people know this. I know it because I remember it, its existence when I was a kid. I mean, this thing is old, but it's called Active Worlds. I know what that is. (laughs) It's a very early, early. 3D social space came out at a time you did not think it would exist, right? Late 90s. What the hell is this? But it, if you really like anybody out there that's interested in that kind of like 3D avid, like just worlds, look it up. It's fascinating that that existed back then. They had models to make that system work. Like it was its own engine back then, but nowadays they use old renderware technology to kind of help support it basically it was second life but you can create all your assets objects you have your own world like it's a very fascinating place that still looks like it's stuck in time and one last little tidbit which is kind of cool the the main hub world and some of the servers that still exist for it are untouched so things people made over 20 plus years ago still exists there because the only way those things can get deleted are by the actual user. So it's kind of cool looking at it because it's like a little piece in time that's just frozen there, right? Like, you know, until those servers or whatever it's on gets shut down, like this piece of early pre-2000s internet culture and life right in a virtual world still exists and it's such a fascinating thing to look at because you're like 
damn, like it's hard to believe something like that existed back then. But I know I'm starting to ramble on this, but I just thought, I don't know. It, it's such a cool damn little program out there. But yeah, that's a really cool time capsule, honestly. Like how amazing would that be to, you know, like 20 years from now, look back, log in real quick and be like, eh, is that still there? Oh, it's my crazy gosh. that it's still there. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what? That's amazing. I love that. So there are a huge library of game design or game engines out there now. Right. But uh, like we said, Unreal is kind of king at this point in 96. Uh, So Unreal Tournament came out in 1998. Right. But it was actually being licensed out at the start of 1996. So for quite a while, about, ooh, let's say, what is that, a decade? Yeah. For a decade, Unreal has been kind of owning the market and changing the way that we look at games and how we design them. But then in 2005, a, like a trio of developers come out, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Francis, uh, Joshim Ante, and David Helgason. Sorry if I butchered your names. Uh, they founded a company in Copenhagen which used, they were trying to design a tool to use the graphics of the Mac OS X, right? So they were using a graphical tool for Mac. And that's actually where Unity began in 2005. And it actually won an award for best use of Mac graphics for that year, which is pretty amazing to think about, right? So for all of game development, even now, everyone's like, oh, Windows, 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 right? But and Unity even works better on Windows, but it it was originally designed for the use of Mac and Unity has such a huge, uh, I don't know, it's weird. Unity has found a way to integrate into almost everything where even it's being used in like um, AutoCAD software, uh, Maya and 3D development. Like you can use Unity in almost every single way that you want to, which is really cool. Uh, but one of the big things about it is that while Unreal was being licensed out to AAA developers, so there was a pretty big premium that you had to pay, and any profits that you made, you did have to kick back to Unreal Engine. Now, Unity comes around and basically gives a free platform for everybody to make games and just enjoy the process of making them. So that's where we start seeing this huge boom of indie games coming out. And just five years later, Unity 3.0 comes out and that featured Android support and advanced graphics, a little bit better of a UI, some technical upgrades. And that's when we start really seeing a huge, huge explosion of Unity games, where even now you can just go across Steam and you're probably going to find a million. (laughs) Most of them are probably Unity games because it's free to use. It makes sense. There is a, a paid price that you can use, uh, for the pro stuff, for some exporting things. But if you want to get your hands on it right now and just use it, it's a great tool. And it's actually the one I use primar- primarily in um, in school was Unity. That's what I learned on. I also use Unreal for some of my classes, but I actually don't like the visual scripting personally. I, I prefer the actual like coding itself. Uh, the visual and scripting in Unreal is can become a mess and I find it like my Mm. anxiety gets really worked up. There is like coding that you can do for it, but it's a plugin that you have to add to it. Right. So it, 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 I don't know. (laughs) So I kind of gravitated more towards unity at first and the library of games that have come out on it are just 
pretty amazing to look at. Every game that I loved at that time, it felt like it was coming out on Unity. So I felt like that's where I had to be. That's where all the games are, right? It's where every like, look that I want to go for is there. But if you look at it, I mean, you can do the same things in Unity that you can in Unreal. It just might be a little bit more difficult to get some of the lighting stuff that Unreal can, that can harness, but it is possible, right? So it, there is some really cool stuff there. But now I know that Unity does take a cut for... Um, development right like if you make money off your game you do have to pay unity back and all that stuff like there there is that that kind of process in place but that's typical for most game engines Mm -hmm. uh you're using a product so of course you need to pay your credit to that product it just it makes sense right but real quick here i'm just kind of curious now we've gone through quite a few game engines right now and there is such a long list of other game engines to talk about oh Actually, before I ask this question, I I forgot to say why they're called game engines. And I think it's kind of funny. So remember John Carmack, the guy who basically revolutionized this whole thing? Well, he was a car fanatic. He loved cars. That was another one of his big passions. And he always said that an engine is the heart of a car. It's the thing that gets it moving. It's the thing that gets it going. Well, game engines are just that. These development tools are the heart of the games. So they actually, or Carmack, or the both both the Johns, John Romero and John Carmack, coined the term game engine. And that's why we continue to use it today. So they are plastered all over gaming history, 100%, which is pretty amazing. It makes them even more epic than what they originally are. But out of all the game engines that we've been talking about or the ones that we haven't discussed yet that we've you know talked about outside of the show, which ones really speak to you? I- I'm kind of curious about that coming from an outside perspective. Hmm. You know, quick little subversion, but I just got to say this for everybody out there. When you played Flash games back in the day on Congregate or News, Newgrounds <laughs> and it had the intro Unity, you knew you were getting some good shit. That's true. Um, it's true. <laughs> yo, I loved it. Even though my computer would be like, whoa, it's it, it's starting to chug, even though it's just a Flash game. But I'm like, damn, it looks so good. Um, but, uh, ooh, you know, as in, like, the kind of engines I can use myself? Or, yeah, because we've been talking about making a game, so I'm kind of curious from the perspective of wanting to make something, because there's so many out there. Like, we can, we have so many to choose from, and most of them have a free version to just jump in and start playing around with. Which ones kind of, you know, talk to you the most, or, like, kind of uh... grab your attention the most? And, and I'm kind of curious as to why they might uh, get your attention more. For me, I mean, I love 2D and 3D pretty equally. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to games I want to make, like, say, like the ones we've been talking about, I feel like maybe Game Maker Studio, just because it handles 2D really well. Or I also, I've always had a passion of wanting to make a horror game because Mm -hmm. for some reason I've always write down my thoughts on like, oh, this would be a cool story. Oh, this would be a cool idea. But I'm like, I should just make it a game because obviously making a game seems simpler than trying to pitch the idea to a movie studio. So yeah. And nowadays your game can be the pitch. (laughs) 
Exactly. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Unity might be good for that. Or, I mean, Unreal obviously would look great, but... We need some good computers. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm also thinking, oh, well, you know, a lot of this low-poly horror is, you know, becoming big, so you probably could do it in Unity, and it's just fine. But I think, for the most part, when I look at all these different engines, while... Some of them seem really interesting, like Construct, where it's just kind of like plug and play. Mm-hmm. I I keep going back to either Game Maker or Unity. Unity mostly because that's the only one I've really played around with. Mm-hmm. But I like the games made in Game Maker. And everything that I've seen about it seems very intuitive as well compared right. to some of these other ones that I'm just like, what the hell's going on the screen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's tough to really like nowadays because there's so many, it's almost difficult to just get started. And you, there's a rabbit hole of YouTube videos to go down of what game engine should I learn? Which one should I use? And really, the best answer, honestly, is which one looks the best to you, which interface makes the most sense, and then just kind of run with that and see what happens. Or ask yourself, what kind of game do you want to make? Do you want to just learn an engine? Well, there's definitely a lot out there for you to choose. Or are you really trying to make a huge AAA game that looks freaking amazing and perfect lighting, all that stuff right out the bat? Well, then you might want to invest in Unity and by invest, I mean, Unreal. And by invest in Unreal, I mean, get yourself a really good computer because it runs really difficultly. <laughs> like that, it, yeah, the computers I have at the Y currently, they don't work very great for Unreal. I tried. I can get it running, but damn, it doesn't look good. <laughs> so you really need a good computer for that. Now, Unity is a great starting platform, I would say. And if you're looking to learn like C++ or C Sharp, like it's a great tool for that. And it will get the job done, honestly, and it will do it very well. And the user faith is rather intuitive, right? It's not too hard to grasp. And there's a lot... The biggest thing with Unity, I would say, is the um, the the people that are sharing their ideas, right? The community of Unity is massive. So every single question that you have has probably been asked and answered in some form, way, shape, or format, right? So that that's a really awesome draw for it. Now, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been playing around with a lot of different game engines because I'm looking to create new game design classes available that I'm going to be teaching. And one of them that I found that I think is pretty amazing, and you ta- you, meant, you brought it up, was uh, Construct 3. Construct 3 is really, really cool. Uh, it's a 2D game engine. There is some 3D uh, that you can do. It's very simple 3D for now. But what I find really fascinating about it is that if you're just learning to, or if you're just wanting to learn code, like you've never scripted before, ever, uh, I would say Construct is a great intro to it because it teaches you a lot of the syntax without having to actually code anything into it. It uses what's called behavioral trees or just behaviors themselves. Or, uh, yeah, behaviors and event trees. So let's say, for instance, you want a character to move, right? And maybe you're doing a top-down uh, game, like uh, you're remaking Link's Awakening, right? So if you want that, you take your player sprite and you just give it the behavior of movement and hit play. That's it. It really boils down to just that. If you want the player to get hurt whenever, or like if let's say you have the pots there that you can break in in Link or in Zelda, (laughs) 
you go up and you have it where if the player or if the sword touches this pot, then the pot gets destroyed. You don't have to code any of that. It's just written out real nicely for you. And it's it's a really great intuitive uh, engine that I'm probably going to be bringing in for the six to nine year olds. because I think it's a it's a great introduction there. And these kids are so damn smart. It's kind of terrifying, honestly. Uh, another engine that I was using too for, and I am still using it for my classes, which I have been enjoying, is Godot. Godot is another great uh, resource to have, and it's very light on the computer, but the interface looks very similar to Unity. So if you're actually out there and you're worried about, like, if you try and download Unity and it kind of runs a little buggy or sometimes it crashes because you don't have the greatest PC or if you're even running on a laptop, right? Like Godot is a great alternative to Unity because it's very lightweight. I, I was kind of surprised by how fast it loaded and how quickly we're able to make these games on even older PCs. So it's another really fantastic introduction tool. But my favorite so far, and the one that I've been really enjoying, because I've used Unity, Unreal, Construct, Godot at this point, and the one that I really like and the one that I'm kind of jiving with the most is actually Game Maker, uh, Game Maker Studio. And I, there's just something about it that I really enjoy. It's a nice hybrid between the event systems and the coding itself. Um, I, I feel like my brain just works great with code, and I just prefer it that way. So, But having this mixture of events makes the process a lot faster. Uh, so I can create an event and then just code what I want to happen within that event. I don't have to worry about making functions and calling those functions and doing some of the what can be considered as redundant text. Uh, like I can just have it where here's my event, boom, done, okay, move on to the next thing. And the interface is really nice because it shows you what object you are currently interacting with. Everything is tied together really well in the interface itself. So you know exactly I'm working on this script, right? I'm working on a script that's already been attached to this player. This is, that's it, right? There's no going back and forth between tabs. It's all laid out right there in front of you, which is pretty interesting. So it, it is a cool little process or little game engine. I've used it for probably about a week now, and I've just been really enjoying everything about it. So I'm kind of excited to dive further into it. But there, yeah, they really like, I said in the beginning of this episode, the the possibilities are endless. And it's just so cool to see how far we've gone with game engines and how easy they are to access nowadays. Anybody can make a game. That's the beauty of this and kind of the curse too, right? <laughs> That's where the term shovelware <laughs> comes from. Since everybody can make a game, everybody's making games and a lot of them aren't that great. So we kind of have to fish through some of the bad ones. And a lot of games that get published or published might just be someone's project they worked on over the weekend and you're kind of expecting a full game, but really it's just them learning how to use this engine. And maybe it's a great stepping stone for them to get a career in the field and make something amazing, but this is just their stepping stones. It's their portfolio, right? And there's no way to really distinguish between portfolio projects and actual game releases because there's a different level there. There's a different like passion that's put behind them and you feel that in the gameplay. So I don't know, there really is no right answer as to what game engine you should use, especially for all you new game designers out there. There really is no answer. It's just what speaks to you. If you want to learn Unity, go learn Unity. That's fine, right? But if you're afraid of coding, 
maybe just try out Construct real quick and get familiar with it and just get familiar with the concepts and the idea of making a game and then start challenging yourself with the actual code of it. You know, I, I think that a lot of these game engines create really amazing stepping stones to get to where you want to be. Like if your ultimate goal is to get to Unreal, but you want to learn how to make games right now, there's a lot of really amazing free resources out there to get you to that point. Because every concept you learn in one is going to translate to the next, no matter what. And I really have learned that a lot over this past couple weeks of playing with these different engines and bouncing back and forth between three and one day and not getting confused by them. It's kind of interesting where I feel like I'm learning three languages at once, but they all follow the same formula. You have a sprite, you give it movement. The way you give it movement might be different from one to the next, but that's where you start. So it is a, there's a lot to it. And it's, it's a very magical and really fun experience to create something from nothing. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for joining in and listening to this week's conversation. And honestly, what's your favorite game engine? Or maybe take a look at some of your favorite games and start diving further into what engine they actually use. And if it's something out there that's free and available for you, check it out, download it, just kind of see what it took to make it. And it might give you more of an appreciation for gaming and start looking up some game designers and treat them as heroes because these guys do some amazing stuff. Uh, but yeah, anyway, we're going to talk to you guys next week with some more amazing games, more concepts and all that good stuff. But until then, bye for now.